welcome to Off The Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sat down with Hall of Famer Sandy Nita, currently running the Vegas Henderson Water Polo Program. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of Off the Deck. I am currently at William Woollett Aquatic Center in Irvine. I have the pleasure of sitting down with uh, water polo legend, uh, Sandy Nita. And I know you don't refer to yourself as a legend, but I certainly will. It's, it's ironic that we're here at, the, um, at Woollett for the Hinman Games. I know you and Hinman go way back, and you guys are really close friends, and uh, we can get into that. He was my coach, um, so I have a, obviously a, a soft spot for him always. But thank you for being here, and thank you for being on the program. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, so, you know, I, I've had an opportunity and had the pleasure to interact with you over the years, and really when I started to to interact with you was when you were, during the Brazil time, you were with the women. Um, but obviously there's a lot of stuff that happened before that. So I wanted to just quickly ask you, how did you get started coaching water polo? So I started the, the novice swim team at City of Commerce. And then a couple of years later, I was promoted to the AU, the, the top level swimming. And after about three years, I let the kids have like two weeks off instead of just going year round. Well, when the kids came back, I found out that I lost like a third of the kids hmm. because they found baseball, football, whatever. And so I said, well, you know what? In my off time when I used to swim, my coach, Don Gambrel, used to give us an option of taking either stroke or doing water polo. So naturally, I played water polo. In fact, my first water polo coach was Nick Martin, who's on the Hungarian bloodbath team. Oh, wow. And he taught, I mean, we didn't even use our, our, our hands. It was all with our legs. We turned with our legs. And so that's kind of how I got it started. And then after I stopped swimming, my coach was Bert Shaw, who was a, a USA TWPC member. Um, so when we started water polo at the City of Commerce, we'd have these... Uh, rubber trash cans. We'd empty out the trash, fill them half with water, and set it up like a goal. I found a, <clears throat> a broomstick, cut that in half, found lost and found white towel, nailed that on, <laughs> wow. found lost and found blue shorts, put that on, and we just started playing. Wow. In fact, one of the girls, the first time we went to a tournament in Palos Verdes, you know, rich area, yeah. One of the girls goes, what is that in the pool? And I go, those are goals. And she goes, oh, they don't use trash cans? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I, had, I actually had no idea that you had started the commerce program. Mm. Um, I mean, th that's one of the staple programs of USA Water Polo. I mean, I don't think anybody can deny how amazing of a program that has been. And I mean, Bobby... Contreras right now is doing a phenomenal job. Um, what was it like to start that program? You know, <clears throat> it was very hard just because <clears throat> they were all Mexican-American, mm -hmm. just one white family. We would go to a tournament or something and everybody was calling, you know, dirty this and, you know, making fun. And after the game, a lot of those other kids, they want to fight our kids. So one of the, for our girls team, one of the girls, the younger players came out and says, hey, Sandy, they want to fight uh, this fast team. They want to come over and fight us. So I said, well, call out all the girls. And I told Iris and Dez, two of the bigger players, I go, walk up to them and with your teammates right behind you and say, do you guys have a problem or something? Oh, no, oh, no. And it's the same thing with the boys' team. We're at the Coliseum once, and they wanted to fight. 
just got Jack, who's our biggest player, walk up to them with the teammates behind him. And, you know, I mean, it was very difficult. Yeah. For maybe two, three years, we were treated very, very badly uh, until we started winning JOs and tournaments. And, you know, our girls were beating boys. And yeah. Then we started getting the respect, but it was still difficult. It was... Yeah, it was I mean... You know, in, in some ways, water polo is a is a Caucasian sport, right? right. I mean, that's safe to say that. I mean, that, to right. generalize that. And commerce is one of the few teams that is made up of mainly minorities. Right. Um, being Hispanic myself, I'm Ecuadorian. You know, I, you sort of understand what you're what you're walking into, and there's going to be a little bit of a, a funky eye how they're looking at you when you're walking on the pool deck. Um, but you're you're talking about a time that you're trying to break through in the water polo world and not just with minorities, but also with women and with girls playing guys and all these different things. Right. So what was that like? I mean, you know, I mean, I can't obviously speak on that perspective because I'm a man. So what, what is that like? You know, the one thing that I always encourage the kids to do is to take pride in themselves. doesn't matter what anybody says. It's what you think about yourself. And you don't need to be the one to go out there and initiate the, the physicality, yeah. the punch or whatever, you know? And I kind of pride myself on that. I think in all my years of coaching, I've had one player get kicked out on brutality. And, and this was on the women's national team. Yeah. But never with any of my club teams. Yeah. So they just have to get up there and, and take whatever they and then we talk about it later. Yeah, and so, you know, kind of jumping around a little bit, but skipping to your personal past uh, as a swimmer, you know, as I was doing my research for this interview, I mean, I found out you were on the national team for swimming, is that, is that right? Yeah, I was on the uh, 64 Olympic team. Okay, so you're on the 64 Olympic team, um, obviously really fast, blazing fast, and so you, that was your background right. as a swimmer. And then you started doing water polo kind of on the side, like you were saying. And then when did it become like, I want to do water polo now? Like, this is where I'm, I'm going to... Probably the first season I started it. <laughs> really? Is that quick? <laughs> so after we started it, we entered in this age group thing that Stan Sprague and Mary Sprague ran. Okay. And we really got involved. So uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were swimming days. Tuesday, Thursdays was water polo. And then it, we made it so if you wanted to, everybody wanted to play water polo. So if you wanted to play water polo, you had to swim on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to be able to come to water polo. Wow. Wow. And that, I mean, that was like the, the beginnings of the women's national team and, and women playing water polo here in the States. Right. Um, and you started coaching the women's national team at, at around 79 79 um and i mean we still have some women who are playing you know i mean we're at the hinman games there's probably women playing that that you may have coached or, or played with yeah um you know what was it like to take this group of of women high level athletes what was the training like? What was the schedule like? I mean, how did you put it together? So when I first started coaching the women's national team, there was less than 250 registered athletes across the nation Wow! in all age groups. And we had them from Florida, New Mexico, Texas, uh, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Oregon, Washington, and California. And so I would pick maybe the top 15, 20 players, and we would train only three times a year, once uh, during Easter and New Year's vacation, once during Easter, let's see, Christmas, Easter, and during the summer. And on the first day of each camp, I'd have them, they knew that on the first day they'd have to come in and swim 2200s on 230. So this way they kept in shape when I, I didn't see them. They had to send me their logs once a month. Mm. They, they'd write down what they, they'd swim. And 
you know, when they come back to me, I can tell if they actually did those workouts <laughs> that they yeah. wrote down. Yeah. Um, and that's how we got together. And then with the national team, we got nothing paid for. In fact, to be on the national team, I charged each girl $50 just to be on the team wow. and gave it to my manager and she saved all that money until years later she said, Sandy, what do you want us to do with this money? I go, well, how much is it? She says, it's over $10,000. Oh I go, wow, well, that's half a trip. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll take a training trip on yeah. that. But it was, it was very hard, you know, we were the only team or the country that was playing that, that many workouts. Like Holland, they'd have like four workouts a week because they just hop on a, a train and yeah. train together. Canada was getting money, Australia was getting money, everybody was getting money except for us. And we had to pay for our own hotel, transportation, or, or airfares. Um, I mean, you know, our uniforms, everything. Wow. So there was no support. There was no support. And so is USA Water Polo, and I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't know. Is USA Water Polo an organization that's overseeing this at this time? Yes. Okay, so yeah. they're just saying we're focusing on the men, basically. Is right. And so when you're going around and you're, and you're training and, and um, you're playing against these other countries, what countries were the teams that you were playing against con consistently? Um, Australia, Holland, Canada, and us were the top four. Okay. And then later on, Germany came in. Uh, way later, Italy came in. Hungary came in way late. Uh, but it was basically those four teams. That's, that's co very cool. And so, you know, again, I'm sort of skipping from, you know, question to question. I want to get back to that, of course. But I, I also wanted to ask you, um, you know, now that you're here and you've, you've had this career, you know, spanning however many years, what is, and you're still coaching to this day, uh, um, what is your feeling about water polo right now? Like the current state of like this club, uh, you run Henderson, um, Team Vegas water right. polo. Um, so what's your feeling about the current state of water polo at the club level and also at the collegiate level? You know, at the club level, basically in, in Nevada, we are the only team in Nevada. Uh, we have no high school. There's no high school. So we get these kids to come into our program. And like today, we've had four or five games, and we've won them all, you know? And I, I think it's because we don't get to go to tournaments very often, so it means a lot to us. Mm -hmm. We're in Southern California, they're at a tournament almost every single weekend, yeah. and it's just another tournament. Yeah, there was know? one last weekend. Yeah, <laughs> so and there's, there's another one this weekend yeah. in yeah. Commerce, so yeah. uh, that is, you know, in, in the state of water polo, I think the, it's good that the new rules are coming in, mm -hmm. that always helps the change. As far as collegiate water polo, uh, Bob Korb, who's the NC2A coordinator, he took a big step, him and the, the women's and men's committee, by changing the rules <clears throat> and calling the game the way it's written. Mm -hmm. So when a player turns inside water and, and that person's fouled and they didn't finish, doesn't matter. They got fouled, it's a foul. It's a five meter or an exclusion. Yeah. It's something, you know? And, and this is sort of touching on the advantage rule. Yes, Okay. a, a little bit. I'm, but, hearing, I'm hearing this theme a lot for yeah. people who are involved with the college game. Yeah, I, I know I, I listened to uh, James Graham and yeah. Felix before, yeah. Yeah. and they were talking about this rule. But I think the game has really cleaned up for the men's season. It's cleaning up even better for the women. Uh, it's more water polo. Yeah. So when somebody drives, there's no more hand checking. You're, you're excluded, yeah. you know? And, and at center, if they have the ball and they turn inside, let it go, and they're still foul, it's a five meter. Yeah. So 
As far as that goes, I, I think the rules are helping the collegiate game. Um, from what I hear from Koganoff, the TWC vice president, yeah. he's also, I mean, he did our, our NC2A championships this year, and he likes the rules. Yeah. I mean, it was a big contrast of difference coming from watching international play and coming into our college season. I mean, he made a fantastic adjustment. Yeah, yeah. And so how are you involved directly with the college game? Uh, I'm the supervisor of officials for the MPSF. So we assign the officials for all the MPSF games. Um, and then usually at least the top two of our officials will always go on to do the NC2As. Yeah. Um, like I've made policy on accountability for referees. I've changed um, how much the referees are getting paid, their per diem, their mileage, the driving time, mm -hmm. the tolls, the parking at airports. You know, we're trying to treat our referees a lot better. Yeah. So you're responsible for really making sure that they're treated like professionals. Correct. I mean, that, that's a big thing because you, at the club level, we see officials doing 10 games in a row. Um, and that obviously can be a major problem uh, later on in the day when yeah. you've coached, you know, 10 games or ref 10 games. Um, but at the collegiate level, you know, you might be refing at a tournament like two in a row and then you're off for a Yeah, usually months. it's never two in a row. It's usually like one, at least one off, maybe two off. Okay. Okay. And that keeps them fresh. Fresh, and right. Sort of and they might only get two games a day. Yeah. You know. And so do you think that the with the new rules that, you know, like you're touching on, do you think that that's going to help the audience, the, the spectators, be able to understand the game better? Is that the biggest I, hurdle? I think so. And I think the big part is when you have these age group parents watching the game yeah. and somebody's getting killed at center or killed on a drive, they'll say, I don't want my son or daughter playing this game. Yeah. Look how brutal it is. Yeah. And now it's becoming a more fluid game. Yeah. And surprisingly, you know, Bob met with a lot of resistance, but the, the men came through great and the women are doing great. Yeah. And this is the first year of doing these roles. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think when, you're, when you have a sport that is based solely on physicality, it eliminates 75% of the people who are really athletic and can actually play the game, but just don't have the sheer size and strength to, to be able to keep up. And now you're starting to see players that are a little bit shorter in stature, but really athletic, right. who are really making a name for themselves it, it, at the USA level, at the collegiate level, which I think is really important. Yeah, at the collegiate level, you used to call them attackers. Yeah. Well, now you can call them drivers again. Yeah. because they're actually able to drive. And was that your bread and butter? Was that your position when you were a player? A what actually, did you do? with my size, I was a center defender. <laughs> and you were just going around and running and moving? And when I was playing, I hate to say this, but when I was playing, the center and the center defender never moved. We never swam to the other side. We just stayed there. Yeah. So don't, don't, the kids who are listening, don't, don't hear that advice. Because <laughs> Sandy will kill you in practice if you're not swimming. Um, wow, yeah, no, I, I, I wish I could see some video of those, those types of those games, you know, just because I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And it, it's, it's interesting that you being an Olympic swimmer, you know, and then you become a, a water polo player, you know, are we... You know, in every in, in all these interviews, especially like um, the guys that have played at, at the highest level, it's like they all have this crazy swimming background. You know, the 2008 Olympic team for the men, big time swimming background. The women, are we getting away from that? I don't, I don't think so. I think the top club teams, high school teams, college teams, I think they all do their conditioning. Maybe not all swim sets, but at least maybe half of it swim sets yeah. and half of it with uh, water polo drills and stuff where they are actually conditioning. But, and maybe the weaker teams, 
you know, I think they're so involved in playing the game. I mean, if, if you don't have the legs, you can't catch, pass, what good is touching the ball? Yeah. You know, you can draw up the best play in the whole world, but if they don't pass the ball correctly, they don't catch it, they don't have their legs underneath you, you know, it's, it's, it's a waste. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to matter. So um, we, we sort of touched on a little bit of the starting the program at Commerce and some of those challenge, challenges, um, you know, and you're sort of touching on some of the similarities of, of players. You've had an opportunity to coach you know, great players, not just in the United States, not just, you know, but from all over the world. So what are you looking for? Or what do you see um, in, in great players? What are some of the similarities? So <clears throat> the, the similarities, you're going to think this is weird, but <laughs> one of the things that I look for in a player is they have this certain something special. They might be a little bit of troublemakers, like out of the water, they might get in trouble. They have this little spark. So during one weekend, <clears throat> we're training down here, and Bobby calls me up and says, hey, Sandy, we need a team to fill into our tournament. Can you guys come down and play? And I said, we will if you allow us two entries. So I want eight games instead of just four mm. games. So we got in there, and we played, and we were playing San Luis Obispo. And this is before when the whole benches switched. The benches stayed and, and the teams switched. Oh, okay. So this one player, I don't know if you know her, Gubba she, she, she was out in the exclusion box a lot. And one time she was there and I turned to her and I said, what's your name? And she goes, Gubba. And I said, well, Gubba, after this game, come over and talk to me. I want to invite you for the national team. Wow. And she goes, me? I go, yeah, you're, you've got this extra spark in your play, and this is probably why you're getting excluded. You can always take a player and calm them down, but it's very difficult to take a calm player and to get them intense. I agree with that 100%. You know? And those are, you know, I mean, Gubba made the national team yeah, because I, she got excluded yeah. three times almost every single time we played her. Yeah. I mean, she's... Uh, she was an Olympian. Yes. Yeah, she was, uh, I, I want to say 2000, 2004? Two, 2000, I think she was. 2000, okay. So I, I don't think she made it to four. Okay, but I remember her uh, clearly. And so you're looking for like an extra spark. Any other thing that you've seen in these great players that you're trying to, because, you know, sometimes when you have a really good player, you, you try to like, remember some of the things that they did that were successful and you try to apply those to some of the other plays. I mean, sometimes I even get like ideas for drills just off of some creative play that, you know, a really good player makes. Um, is there anything else? You know, <clears throat> what I'd like to, to talk about is uh, uh, Max Irving, mm -hmm. UCLA. He's now on the men's national team. He's got to be the only player in the whole U.S., in the whole world, that I've seen with the basic skills of catching and passing. And I think this is, I don't know, but I, I'm guessing this is why the men's coach has him on the national team. He gets up, his arm is in a good position, he doesn't drop his elbow, he never puts his elbow in the water. I mean, your elbow's in the water, you think the goalie is gonna think you're gonna shoot or even pass the ball? He is a pure shooter. He's got the legs. He gets up before the ball gets there. Mm -hmm. His arm is always in a shooting motion. And he's got to be the only player that doesn't catch it, drop his elbow, bring the ball back down, bring the ball back up. Yeah. So these are something that you're just sort of hammering in your players. Like, and I, I actually say very similar thing. I mean, keep the ball above your head when you catch the ball. You know, yeah. so many people, they learn this cushion of bringing the ball down and then bringing it back up. But as they get older, that doesn't work anymore. Right, and I think they learn this from watching everybody except for Max Irving. <laughs> you know, you, you look at all the national teams, they all do that. Yeah. And I think we've just gone away from, from that basic 
movement, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, think about when you used to play. Did you used to drop the thing and fake the ball and fake the ball? I mean, you it know. It was pass and catch, pass and catch. Hinman was, he was relentless on us, you know? I mean, he was my, he was the best development coach ever for me, yeah. pers- that, that I've ever come across. He would have been a dream if he was like a 10 and under or 12 and under coach because he would have just, he, he just never let up on the basic stuff. And back then he had, the flags were like a pole, you know, like the, the red and blue or the white and blue were on either side. That was how you ref. And I remember when we, would, he, we made a mistake one time and he hit the diving board so hard, the ladder, mm-hmm. that it cracked here at Woolet. <laughs> And they had to replace it. And he was just fiery, you know? He was just really, really fiery. So, um, you know, I, I guess since we're talking about Hinman, since I brought it up, how did you get to know Hinman? He used to coach at Industry Hills. Yeah. And um, so when I was the national team coach, I'd go and watch all the, the senior, junior, collegiate championship. It wasn't NC2A, but collegiate and I would go down there and I would referee to help pay for my expenses. Mm. So I knew Scott as a club coach with, uh, well, actually with Scott Massey. I used to swim with Scott Massey. Uh, and he and Hinman coached at uh, I, uh, Industry Hills. Yeah. And that's how I got to know Scott. Wow. And so did he start coaching with you? Yeah, he was my assistant for three years. I mean, we were really close. He usually I let him handle the conditioning part. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he's worked with you. So you know all about the cones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, he was just uh, he always came up with these wild ideas. Mm-hmm. Always had a wild idea. You know and. Of the maybe 40 wild ideas, we'd take two of his ideas mm-hmm. and go with it, and it becomes successful, you know? He was just a super guy, yeah. you know? He was, he never was, he never had a mean bone in his body. Like, when I used to watch him work here, he must have walked every single day 10 miles walking back to this table, to the other side of the pool, to this, putting in lane lines, doing this, doing that. You know, he was just relentless. He was, so one time I had him as a VIP coach at the uh, uh, Masters Festival, and I'm telling the the ladies, hey, you cannot shoot. You gotta shoot over your hips. You guys are all leaning like this. How can you shoot like that? I mean, you can't even walk like that. And then Scott raises his hand and he goes, Sandy, that's the way I walk. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, Scott. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, he he was, I I wish, he's so humble because he could have so easily told us all of these stories that he had about these high-level players that he coached. He never told us that stuff that I remember. It's like every year or every group was just, it's new group, it's, it's, this is the group that's most important. He never brought up the past. Um, but he did have something that he would do to, to me personally and everybody else, and I'm sure he did it to some of the, the girls on the team when he was coaching. He would look at you dead in the eye and he would say, not we're gonna try this. This is like very specific moments. He would say, we're gonna, you're gonna do this and you're gonna get the ball and you're gonna score or whatever it was. And you just like look at him and go, okay, like you're telling me I'm gonna do this and I guess I'm gonna do this. He had that power. Trust and belief. Yeah, he had that power to make you literally believe that you could do something spectacular at that one particular moment. Um, And he was great, I I, I do miss him. And I remember when we won CIF here, Olu, the girls, you know, he came up to me, he shook my hand, and it was like, it was like, you know, it was a, a really good moment. It was like my coach, you know what I mean? It was me, and, and anyways, it, it was awesome. So, um, so, we were talking about how you were coaching the national team. Um, 
who was on that team that stands out like in your mind right now? I mean, not to put you on the spot, but um, who who on that team was there that just was the star? Who was the star at that time? You know, I would say the star were several is not necessarily in order. Yeah. But Lynn Comer, she was our team captain, great leader. I mean, the team followed her, yeah. you know. They, she, she made everybody bond. The great player would probably be Maureen uh, Oltu Mendoza Purcell, yeah. <laughs> uh, who's and, now coaching in Australia. Oh, okay. She was at Diablo. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She started Diablo yes. up north, right? And okay. she was on the 2000 Olympic team. She was the only, I don't want to call her a throwback, but somebody from the old school yeah. that continued. I think she was like 39 when she made the, the Olympic team. And um, I, I'd say Maureen, Comer, and... I don't know. We had a lot of characters. Like, you you know who Sandy Bessie is? I don't. She she's a goalie. Her daughters play at uh, in San Diego. Um, Lynn Whitstock. I mean, they were always about fun. Yeah. Amber Drury. I know she, Amber. Yeah, she was a quiet leader in the water. She's like one of the top officials now. Oh yeah. She yeah. I think for this last men's season she came out to be number one. Wow. She's really good. Yeah, she's really good. And uh, Dion Gray? Yeah, Dion Gray. Oh, Dion Gray was our our tourist guide. Like, <clears throat> we're in Paris, France, and she goes, okay, let's walk over here. We'll go see the Eiffel Tower. So we're following her, and like after an hour and a half of walking, she shows us this view, really nice view of the Eiffel Tower, looking down about a mile and a half. So then we went, we walked over to the Eiffel Tower and I'm looking around and I go, Dion, didn't we just come out this door? It's like 15 feet away from the Eiffel Tower. And she made us walk like an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back just to get that good view. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she was, in fact, she's on vacation now with Comer in Taiwan. Oh, okay. And they're doing all the sites. Oh, that's cool. And, she, I mean, she, I, I saw her at Dion get in. She still does lessons for goalies. Um, she actually did some private lessons uh, with my wife, who, who played water polo in high school and college. Um, she was a, I mean, she's a Hall of Famer. I mean, she was yeah. phenomenal. Um, she still coaches here at Woodbridge, at Woodbridge High School yeah. in Irvine. So, um, so if there was something, like, I, I guess I, I didn't send you this question ahead of time, but I, I feel like you have some thoughts on this, so I'm going to just throw it out there. How do you feel about the current state of USA Water Polo right now? You know, <clears throat> I, I just wish that U.S. Water Polo would be kinder to people who've put in their dues, you know, like Terry Seri, uh Tom Hermstead, Bill Frady, Bill Barnett, you know, all these guys, uh, Ted Newland. But it's like once they're past their prime, it's like out of here. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I'm on the alumni swim team, so I must get at least three emails a month inviting me to this reunion, inviting me to this swim meet, inviting me to this fundraiser, inviting me to, to everything. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about the alumni swimming for, for the Olympic team? Y yes. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's so on my car I have that U.S. swimming alumni st uh, sticker on my car. Yeah. But with U.S. water polo, it's just like, all right, you serve your purpose, now leave. Yeah. You know, and it's these people now that have the money that can help instead of going out and finding these you know, I mean, you, you, I'm just going to say, yeah, you, look, say you, you look at our board of directors and they're all money management people. Yeah. There's no one that really knows the ins and outs or what people at this tournament really want. That's really important. 
You know, it's all about the almighty buck. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a separation between what the business of water polo is and what the pleasure of water polo is. And they might be able to bridge that gap by reaching out to coaches who have been doing it for a long, long time, right? Sure. You know, so coaches, referees, administrators. Yeah, it's not enough to name a plaque or an award after a coach. That that doesn't seem to do it. You know, um, I think the reason I'm still I'm becoming the old school now. I mean, I've been coaching for almost 20 years. You know, I'm 41 years old. Like we have all these new young coaches coming in, and that's great. I mean, I think it's it's a great thing. But like, I'm reaching out to the people that I saw and looked up to first. I mean, you know, like that's who I'm sort of talking to and trying to like engage with because I just feel like there's so much to learn from what happened in the past and those stories aren't being told, you know? How can USA, and, and I mean, this is probably hard to say because you're part of it, you know, you're, you're one of those people that in some ways isn't being or given the recognition and I know you would never say that but I'm saying it, but what can we do as a community to help? I mean, what, what, what can the fans do? All, we're paying dues up the yin yang. So, what can we do? You know, I, I would just say that you need to get people and organize yourself and talk to the board of directors, talk to Chris Ramsey, talk to Graf, you know, and try to get your point across that, you know, pretty soon it's just going to be you, you have to be rich to play this sport. And if that's the case, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, maybe, maybe American water polo can come out here and start taking over some of these tournaments. Yeah. You know, Dan Sheridan does a super job, I mean, for nothing, for nothing. Yeah. I mean, he gets a salary, but he can run a tournament and it could be like a 200, when's the last time you paid $200 for an entry fee? It's 150. It's impossible. As a coach, how much do you pay? In American water polo, it's free. They give you a t-shirt and one ball. Yeah. And it's free. And you're covered with insurance, you know? So what happened to those days? Yeah. yeah. And it's not like the money's going to and look, I'm not, ba I'm not bashing USA Water Polo. You're not bashing, you know, we're part of it. We're here, right. you know what I mean? So obviously we're just trying to make it better, but it's not like the money's going to the athletes, hmm. right? I mean, it's not like the money is going to Ben Halleck or Maggie Steffens or Kylie Nuschel because they're overseas playing, you know? They, they you know, so I, I guess that's one big gap. And I, and I agree with you about the, the fact that the sport's gonna become like soccer, where you gotta pay all these thousands of dollars to play the sport. Um, and part of it is facilities and the increased cost of facilities. That, you can't ignore that. Um, the districts have gotten really smart about how much they could charge, so I get that. But um, there's also a lot of people making a lot, you know, there's a few people making a lot of money off of right. what we're doing. I mean, a new office, they're trying to get this pool and you know? Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, give it back to the people. Yeah. Instead of making them pay for everything. It's like this ODP, they say, so if you make a, the NTSS, the National Training Camp, you have to pay $1,250. But it's a fundraiser. No. It's the parents have to dish that money out. Yeah. So, you know, probably with ODP, they probably make, like, over a million bucks, yeah. if you do the math. Yeah, I've always been a believer in the, with the ODP system. Would it be beneficial? Because you, you mentioned, hey, uh, this person, Bubba, I want you to try out. Or, you know, you kind of had this way of finding players on your own because you're on the pool deck all the time. Um, you know, I've always wondered what it would be like if they reached out to the coaches and said, send me your best two players. We're gonna have a closed tryout only off of this invitational type player. If someone feels slighted or if someone, you know, feels like they were left out, 
you can come to the open tryout and that one's going to cost this much money. Right. I feel like that to me is where the disconnect is. And that's what's frustrating as a coach who's put in a lot of time. The disconnect for me is that I've never been asked for input on a youth team. Actually, I won't say never. John Abdu's reached out to me. Ethan D'Amato's reached out. Hey, what do you think? Um, so Christy Rodriguez, Kristen Rodriguez, who's doing the youth team, you know, she's reached out to me. So, like, I, I would be lying if I said no one has, but it's not like a yearly thing. I mean, they do ODP every year. So it would be nice if every year they said, who should we pick? It, I mean, don't you think that would be? Yeah. It's like it's, no trust in the coaches almost, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's this one kid from Florida who played with us at JO's, Andre, and he was the last player to be cut off this junior team. And he may get eight, ten, probably eight tournaments a year. So this one player that he got cut from was a California kid at the same level, but Andre has not nearly the experience. So just think if you gave Andre that experience, yeah. you know? It's kind of like Ben Stevenson. He used to play for, for Vegas. And when Guy was in charge of ODP, Guy did a lot. He's very organized. Uh, he did a lot for outside of California. Yeah. He, he picked Matt Farmer, okay? He picked Ben Stevenson. He's... Almost every top-notch out of California player, it was guy that, that put him on the team. Mm. And nowadays, it's just like, all right, well, we got to put one out-of-stater on. Let's give it to the second goalie. Yeah. You know, we're... It's like a token out-of-Southern yeah. California guy yeah. or out-of-Northern California guy yeah. or girl. Exactly. Um, so the women's national team currently is obviously doing amazing right. um you know they're they're winning and they're doing all these different things how close are you or in, in terms of just like knowing what's going on on the men's side national team i hear things here and there yeah are what are your thoughts about our because and i'll, I'll give you a little context i don't want to just throw it out there but in some of the conversations i've had with other coaches they've they've brought up the fact that it's hard to keep the players playing um, we're losing players, you know, the last Olympic games, they lost already like nine players or something out of that roster. Um, whereas the women seem to be more connected and, and they seem to be more gung ho about staying together and, and dominating. Um, do you have any thoughts on maybe why or? Uh, one, I think because I, I know I'm, I'm not real sure about the money amounts, but the, the pie that the USOC gives a team is if they perform well, you get more piece of mm -hmm. the pie. If you don't, you get less. So just looking at the women, they're, they're winning everything, so they're getting more piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. The men aren't winning, so they're getting less. And until they can fix that, it's gonna be this turnaround. Yeah, yeah. That and, and I, I don't think that all the men are totally engaged. Like I think we're this year the men aren't going to two tournaments that they probably should. Mm -hmm. You know, like so maybe they don't get beat against uh, Japan, Australia, what other team? You know, those types of teams yeah. to our intercontinental. Yeah, yeah. I mean, losing to Japan was a big blow. To, I mean, they to lost us. to Brazil. Yeah. And that brings me to your Brazilian experience. I was, it was really cool because you brought a team up here and went, came to a couple of my tournaments that I host up at SEC. Um, how did that come about? How did you? So back in 99, uh, Olga Pinceroli, who's the manager, she asked me to go up there. And this is before the Olympics, before they got any money. Olga raised a lot of money flew me out for like a month, came back for two weeks, flew me out for like a month and a half, came back, and all this was paid for, gave me a salary, and that was it, all right? I had full control over the, the team, when they trained, who my assistants were, 
everything. And that worked out really well. I mean, we went to Pan Americans and we beat the, the US, you know, eight, I think it was eight to six. I mean, first time ever. Yeah. And then uh, before the Olympics, they asked me again, but it was totally different, okay? The money was controlled by the office. Mm. And a lot of those people just got out of jail. I mean, they stole up to like 12 million, wow. $20 million. That should have been going to aquatics. And it was just strange, like we'd have a, most of the team was from Sao Paulo. We would go for a training camp in Rio. We would not, say if our flight was at two o'clock, we would not know until 11 o'clock that morning what time our flight was. Wow. Because they wouldn't buy the tickets until the last minute. And why? Because the wife of one of the guys in charge at the office has a travel agent. So that travel agency charges more for those tickets. She makes more money. Gotcha. I mean, that's just a small thing. Yeah. Just yeah. a very small thing. Yeah. And then <clears throat> when I was first there, they promised me that I can have three foreigners, just like the men. I think the men ended up with four. And we had them all picked and, and ready to go and stuff. And then they, they cut that out. Mm. They, they didn't let me have a say on even who our team captain should be, uh, who the junior coach should be. And around what year was this? When this you... was 2012. 2000, yeah. Okay. So it took me probably less than a, maybe nine months there. And that I just it. said, that's it. Yeah. This is not my show. And they have, I mean, because I, I had the, the pleasure of watching uh, the women's national team at the South American Championships in 2012, I believe, in Medellin, Colombia. They were dominant. I mean, they dominate South America. Um, and then in 2014 in Belém, Brazil, they were there as well. Um, they keep going, obviously, but they had a really, you had picked a really young group at that time. Is that yeah. accurate? I mean, you had like some 15, 14 year olds on that team that were playing with the senior team. Right. Um, was that just something where you're like, they may not be the best available player, but the ceiling is just, because they're, I mean, so athletic. They have really good athletes well, there. You know, they're athletic, but the good part of them, when I was coaching in 99, they were very smart because they watch soccer. They understand the game, mm -hmm. you know, where to pass, where to look, you know, or what kind of plays. With, when I was coaching the U.S. women's team, it was hard for me to get through why we're setting this pick here, mm. how to set the pick, and what the purpose of the pick was. But in Brazil, I just said, we're going to go like this. Boom. They get it. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, they're just a little bit more street smart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to deny that. Like, they're just, you know, they, they have a little edge about them. They're, they're always, like, kind of, like, have their eye to the side because something might... I mean, Rio, Sao Paulo, those beautiful cities, but you could take the wrong turn real quick yeah. in a city like that, you know? Uh, most of the girls on the... One thing when I was coaching the Brazilian team was I could go up to any coach in the world, any coach, and just say... My team is richer than your team. <laughs> and, you know, they come from wealthy families. Yeah. You know? yeah. that, that was something that I heard when I was down in South America, that the Brazilians who were on the national team, most of them were fairly well off. Yeah, there which, might be one or two that came from a poor yeah, city. Which allowed them to continue training and playing as much as they did. Yeah. And now those guys, those guys and those girls on the young side, because there was like three or four 15-year-olds on the, on the senior men's team, and same thing with the women's team during that time. And now, I mean, they're Olympians and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Groomy was one. Uh, Gustav, Groomy Gustavo, I believe his name is. I mean, yeah. he's probably the most prominent one that I remember. Uh, you know, with that too, part of the reason why they're good at juniors is because once they pass that age and they have to get into college, the college takes precedent. Yeah. 
Yeah. Colleges, if you're going to the Olympic Games and you miss two weeks or whatever, you're done. They, they don't give you any grace period. Mm. So when these kids say that they're going to go home and study, they study. They're not on the phone. They're not on their uh, TV, playing their games, taking a break. Yeah. They study. Yeah. So it's hard to keep them in after high school. Yeah. And that's why it's so young, too. Yeah. Um, so you're coaching uh, Vegas, Team Vegas. And, I mean, you guys are at JOs every year. You know, you guys are in some major tournaments. You've got some great players come through there. Um, where do you see your coaching career continuing? Okay. My coaching career stopped about three years ago because of the position I hold. So my last JOs, I would have, like, Stankiewicz or LeVon or, mm -hmm. you know, and I could tell I was getting more calls than, than needed just because I, I would assign them the big games. So I said, okay, this has got to be a conflict of interest. So what I do now is I administrate the team, and all I do is coach uh, conditioning two days a week. Mm -hmm. And like I'm leaving most of the coaching to all these guys here. I mean, after I stepped down, I saw a big drop but I, I think the coaches are doing a good job now, yeah. and they're they're bringing them back up. Yeah. So I've kind of stopped coaching and letting my younger group take over. Yeah. And so this is kind of this is a good topic here because I'm the head of a club. I run Northwood. Um, I'm the aquatics director at Orange Lutheran, and part of my job. Part of all of our job is not just developing players, but developing coaches, trying to make them because everybody wants Sandy to coach. If Sandy's not here, then we're not coming. You know, it's everyone wants Steve Carrera to coach. Like if, if Steve's not here, then we're not. We want to pass that on to like the other coaches that are that are with us. What can you tell me as a club administrator how to develop coaches? What what is something that I should be doing? So I, I think number one is you have to hand over the baton and you have to be the head or the head of the program and making sure the kids mine the your assistant coaches, that they have full power over you and and you don't. I mean every once in a while I'll step in because in this fourteen hundred game that we barely won and we should have beating them by five or six. Some of the kids were brain checking the assistant coaches. Mm. And I just pulled them over the side of, who do you think you are? Mm. If you think you know it all, leave. Go start your own club. Or you don't even need a coach. So giving the coaches the power, I would say that. Number two is making them read a lot. This is part of the end of the yeah. <laughs> End of the yeah. interview. But, you know, is, and, and I told them, the, the kids that were brain checking our coaches, I said, you know, the day you think you know it all is the day that you need to quit. The same thing with the referee, same thing as the coach. When you stop learning, it's over. Yeah. It's totally over. I mean, even, even here, I'm, tr I'm trying to to pick up new things, even though I'm not coaching. I just want to know, yeah. you know? Yeah. And are you, are you sitting down with your coaches and giving them advice on strategy, or is it more management? A little, like, so today I thought they put in one bad sub, and I said, okay, why don't you take this person out, put this person in, you know, maybe just small hints, but when I'm saying that, I'm not saying that in front of the players. Yeah. It's just be and then I do sit down with the coaches and probably evaluate them at least twice a year uh, with some X's and O's, like at workouts. If I go just stand and watch a workout and not get involved, well, why don't you do this? Or after this 14 games, they made so many bad passes. Yeah. And I told Mark, I said, Mark, 
So right now you need to be thinking of drills. How are you gonna make these kids make better passes? Because I don't know how I go, well have the passer and maybe a couple guys splashing water, yelling at them, have Abby here and the defense here, where does he pass the ball? Yeah. You know, or maybe they're gonna do a layout pass and they're here, where are they gonna pass the ball? Like under pressure, do that every single time. He goes, but they just don't get it. I go, Mark. He goes, he goes, sometimes these games, sometimes I love water polo, sometimes I hate water polo because it's so frustrating. I go, so number one, you have to realize you have no control in the water. All the control comes from you at workouts. A coach should actually be able to sit here and yell a little bit of direction. The rest of the coaching should happen at workout. So you're not yelling, do this. So at the end, he called the timeout. And I said, oh, Mark, maybe you shouldn't have. Because um, they get to come back and press instead of taking it out and just moving. We had 31 seconds yeah, left. Yeah. And I said, now they're going to come back and press. He goes, yeah, that's right. So next workout, set up a, a 30 second. Yeah. To, to control the ball that you know start off from the lineup and pass the ball all the way back, you know? Yeah. And they just need to keep thinking about these things. Yeah, and, and as someone with experience, you've seen these situations and scenarios over and over and over again, so it's kind of become second nature for you, you know? Um, and so that was kind of touching on what advice you'd give the young coach. I want to go back to that, but I have two more questions if I could. I know you have a game coming up. Um, who have been your biggest mentors and influences okay. in your life? So, <laughs> I have a list of them, and I think it'd be good that I, if I read it, yeah. then I can tell them, hey, your name's been on this podcast. <laughs> You're on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, number one, my swim coach. He, <clears throat> he's a, I think, four four-time Olympian swim coach. Uh, he probably taught me the biggest lesson. What was his name? Don Gambrel. Yeah. He, <clears throat> after the Olympic Games, he invited me over for dinner. And then we went down to his den. And he was telling me how hard and difficult I am to coach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little bit of troublemaker, then talking back and yeah. just just a bratty 15-year-old. And then he said to me, he goes, Sandy, I like coaching the guys better than I do the girls. And this 15-year-old brat says, how can you say that, coach? We made you. Me, Sharon, and Jeannie, we made the Olympic team. We made you. 15-year-old yeah. telling this, this guy. And he goes, Sandy, it's not that. It's when I coach the guys, I coach them like men and they take it. But if I told you, God, you gotta pick it up. What are you gonna think? Oh, he's picking on me, which is true. So when I started coaching the women, I knew that I couldn't use that tone of voice as I'm coaching them. Mm -hmm. I had a reason with them, you know, especially the adults. But even nowadays, I think the boys, the men have become a little more sensitive. Yeah about the yelling and they might take things personal. Yeah. So my coach is number one. All my other coaches that have been my assistant coaches, they've always helped me. They've always given me other insights, like who I should sub, you know, uh, like Scott Hinman, he was really good. Uh, Doc Huntkler from back east. Rodney Bell, my assistant coach in um, Brazil. Uh, Vaughn. She was a national team player. Lynn Comer, Dion was an assistant coach. Um, Aaron Kenny from Oregon. Mark St. John and Chris McGee here. Yeah. Th those were, even though they're my assistants, I consider them a mentor. Also the officials, they helped me a lot. Um, I don't know if you know that, but I used to referee for 10 years doing senior nationals and stuff so brett was brett bernard was a big one andy takata 
Bob Lee, uh, Tom Hermstead, uh, Avi Fuchs from Belgium. He taught me this lesson. One time me and Brett and Avi Fuchs were driving to a party at, after a FINA cup. And we're on these roads back in Irvine. And it's a big mountain area. There's one road going straight ahead. You can probably see for four miles. There's a, the other road going the opposite direction, two miles both ways. And there's a stop sign there. Brett is driving. He stops. And Fuchs goes, do you know why the U.S. will never win a gold medal? And we go, why? He goes, because you follow the rules. You made a stop at this stop sign. No one's there. No one's there. There's no cops around. Just go through it. So, you know, I used to tell my girls this, and Lynn Whitstock once was driving from work, and she missed a turn. So she would have to drive at least another mile down or make an illegal U-turn. She saw that there was no cops. She makes an illegal U-turn. She starts driving back. She passes underneath the bridge. She's off the bridge. About five seconds later, the bridge collapsed from that San Francisco air, uh, earthquake. Oh my God. So she didn't make that illegal U-turn. She probably would have died, you wow. know? So. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. That's crazy. Um, uh, Dave Albertstein, I don't know if you know him. No. Bob Korb and uh, Bill Frady, he helped us a lot. Like, we'd have referees come and talk to the national team, and he'd say the one thing that the, the referee could not do is take away a goal off of a counterattack. Mm. So that was our game, yeah. was the counterattack. Uh, administrators like Dr. Hale, Jane Hale, Jenny Jacobson, do you know her? I don't think so. Okay. She was my first manager, and she really helped me make decisions on who I should pick. In fact, we were right over here at a, it was, we were working out here at Heritage, and there was like a Carl's Jr. down the street, and we're eating, and I'm going through, God, who should I pick? And she just goes, Sandy, you're the head coach, it's your decision. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's your decision. Hmm. So I made that, and after that, every single de decision, I would naturally think about it, but then J Jenny's voice would come into my head and go, Sandy, it's your decision. Yeah. You thought about it, you make the best decision. You're, you don't wanna go out there and lose, right? And I go, no. She goes, well, make the right decision. Yeah. Um, Becky Shaw, do you know the Shaw? I don't. She, when I was playing, she was my team leader. And then when I was the national coach, she was the team leader for, for the national team players. Uh, other people like Thea DeWitt from Holland, she was a big mentor. Rose Younger from England and Kermit from Australia. And I, I would guess a special thanks to Olga Pinceroli because in 98, I probably would have given all the coaching up, but since she got me involved with Brazil, it just kept my, mm. my interest going and going and now into the collegiate season. So I say Olga was also a big yeah. inspiration. That's, that's quite a list of, you know, and what's cool about the list that you made is that it covers like such a broad spectrum of water polo community, team leaders, totally forgotten people. I mean, they do all this hard work, making sure everything is run properly, right. but get literally zero credit, except for the people that are within that circle, um, to coaches and referees and, and all that. And I, I think a lot of those names are, are names that I feel like I need to talk to now that, you know, <laughs> that you've mentioned them. So um, I, wanna, I wanna touch back on this, on this last question which is, you know, what advice would you give to a young coach? You touched on it a little bit, but do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Uh, number one, I, I would definitely always work on basic skills, just the basics. I mean, an entire month could just be basics, yeah. and then you go out and play in a tournament, yeah. and they'll do fine, you know, as long as they have just the general idea of the game. But, you know, if they can't catch or pass, then 
what good is the best drill or best play that you can write up? Because if they fumble the ball, there goes the play. Yeah. You know, if they're shooting on their back, it's going to go high. So I would say the basics. And again, it's just never stop learning. You know, read books. Is there any book in particular that you would recommend just that I could the, read? There's two of them. I, I would say the one that at the time really made a difference was uh, Pat Riley's book, A Winner Within. Mm -hmm. It showed me how to break up the team and take them out of their environment, do team bonding stuff, and just different ideas about how to train a team instead of just in the water, weight rooms, bands, stuff like that. Uh, and then the other one would be the uh, mental toughness books uh, for, so if, if someone's not finishing a shot, you know, why is it? Mm -hmm. You know, if, especially if they have their basics, they have their legs, the correct shooting position, sometimes it's mental. What are they thinking about? And I think you have to get into the heads. And, you know, we've been, I, I've been coaching, I don't know how many years, so over 40 years, and probably the last 25 years, I've used mental toughness as part of that. You know, Bob Korb is a psychologist, and like we have problems with this one kid who is always getting down on himself. Mm -hmm. And I even asked Bob, how can we help this kid, yeah. you know? So it's not just the X's and O's and in the water, it's the out of the, the water stuff yeah. is, I, I think is an important game yeah, I mean, that, that, that we don't pay attention to that And that's much. gonna maximize their athletic ability, right? I right. mean, that, that's what we're trying to do. So, right. um, Sandy, I, this has been really, really cool. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, and I think what's really important for the people who are listening is you know, I think it's important to connect with the past and, and c connect with people who help bring the sport to where it is right now. It's huge now compared to what it was. And you're, you're a really, really big part of that. So I, I just want to say thank you for sitting down and talking with me. And I hope that we can do it again and expand on some more stories. Sure. I got a lot of national team stories that you love. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.